In the temple, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, face and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And, on, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said... Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." Isaiah saw God for who he was in his majesty. The thresholds of the temple trembled at the voice of him, right? The whole place is filling with smoke, righteous judgment. He says, woe is me, I'm ruined. He's seen himself in his total depravity, a wrecked sinner. And then what does God do? He provides, and in this sense, it's a type of Christ. He provides the sacrifice necessary to cleanse him and to, and to uh, take away his iniquity and forgive his sin, which is the hot burning coal that touches his lips. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so I want you to know this, that our God is a consuming fire. And it talks about that in Hebrews 12, 29, that God is perfect. He's without flaw. He's without iniquity. There is no... Um, there's no sin in him. There cannot be any sin in him. Um, and when Christ came and walked this earth, he lived a sinless, perfect, and holy life. He could not sin even if he wanted to sin because it would defile the nature of who God is. Christ was perfect. God is perfect. So that's my first point. The second point is, is that man is sinful. And we look at Romans chapter 5. If, if you want to, you can go ahead and turn there. And, and really, honestly, in this... Uh, if you know me, you could probably just turn to Romans and then have your finger in Romans and your, and your thumb in John, like around John chapter 6, and you'll be able to get around a lot, a lot faster. So um, that, that man is sinful. Uh, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, God put them there, right? He, he, he said you can eat of any fruit, but you can't eat of this tree. Satan comes down, and what's he do? He tempts Eve. Eve eats of the fruit. Um, she gives some to her husband. They both eat, right? They realize they're naked. They realize that they've sinned, and they go and they make some fig leaves, and they try to atone for their sins, try to cover their sins. God comes down. He's like, Adam, where are you at? What are you doing? And he's, and why, who told you that you were naked? Well, here comes the, this is the fall, right? That they disobeyed God and cursed and damned all of humanity. Amen? And, and from that, we've all received this sin nature. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Sin entered into the world through one man. And death through sin. What is, what is um, the consequences of sin? It's death, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, His, Lord, uh, the, the, his Son, the, the Lord. 
Um, so man is sinful. Uh, we got this sinful, wretched nature from the fall, from, from Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter 3, at the beginning of creation, the beginning of time, we receive this sinful nature. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. We need a Savior. But man is also totally depraved and unable to even come to God, like unwilling to even come to God on his own. We're not trying to seek God. I don't know anything about you, but, uh, but, but when you were in your mess and you were living in sin, were you seeking after God? Were you even desiring to want a relationship with God, right? Whatever walk of life it was, whether you were in pride or whether you were in drug addiction or whatever it might have been, whatever walk of life you came from, you loved the way that you lived. You loved the darkness, You didn't love the light. You weren't even trying to seek after God. None of us were. And why do I say that? And how can I say that that, that's true? In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says this. There is none righteous, no, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. I don't know if you're catching that, but it's none. You can just circle none each time. No, not one, and none. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a sin problem. Totally depraved, no fear of God before their eyes, not looking to seek after God. And then also we see in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two, give me some a moment here. I actually texted all the all the things, the slides that I needed to this morning to to, uh, to Tony. And then come to find out Tony's not here. So everything's going great today, you know. But hey, thank you, Lord. We're gonna glorify him today, amen. Okay, so here we go. In Ephesians uh, chapter two. Verses 1 through 3, we see that we are actually dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And what can dead men do? What can dead people do? They can do nothing but stink, right? We're dead. Dead, dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of, one, and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Before Christ came into our lives and saved us, we were not children of God, but we were children of wrath. Children of God's holy wrath. Because of why? Because of our sin. Right. We deserved death. We deserved hell. And, and you see that that we we uh, we served three different masters there. We served the world. We served the devil, the power of the prince of the air, and we served our flesh. We didn't seek after God. We had no fear of God before our eyes. We were serving these things. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to come to God on our own. And so if we were so sinful If we are dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were sinners, uh, we rejected God. We did not fear him and we had no intention to because we loved the darkness. If all of these things are true and and they are as we've read them in the Bible and we all believe that the Bible is true, right? And we all believe that the Bible is without error. We do believe that the Bible is authoritative and that it's useful for rebuking, correcting, and teaching. Amen. 
And they're true, because we see them there, and they're picked out in the right context. If all these things are true, how are we to be saved? If we're unable to come to God on our own, if we're dead in our trespasses and sins, if we keep on rejecting God, if we did not fear God, how are we to come to God? How are we to be saved? And here's, here's the nugget here. If God never chose those to be saved, no one would ever be saved. Amen? Because no one would care even to be saved. See, if God had not first chosen, then no one would ever care to be saved. If God had not first moved first, then we would never come to Christ. And so this is the second point, and this is where it's going to get a little dicey for some people. And I pray that that we can all receive this well. But in Romans chapter 9, we're going to find out that God is sovereign in salvation. So if you have Romans, go flip over there to Romans chapter 9, and we'll look at verses 14 through 18. Um, and in this, he's, he's, he's speaking about Israel, and it's a direct analogy that we can use, a direct illustration about election and sovereign, uh, sovereign election. So Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? I'll wait till you get there. I hear pages spinning still. Let me know when you get there. Say amen. Romans chapter 9. Amen. Sounds pretty good. Good enough to me. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Because of what he had just said, just as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, um, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And I want you to know that, that that word right there, those words, may it never be, is actually the strongest negative no that you can say in the Greek. So it's as if us in the English language would say, no, 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 a thousand times, no, there's no injustice with God. Amen. That's what that word means. So it says, no, may it never be. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Thank you, Lord. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's head over there real quick. (laughs) I learned this trick when you're flipping through the Bible. Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and it's helped me. Every time I open my Bible, I say it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. Let's start at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, say it with me, in love. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of whose will, but his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, In the beloved, in Christ. So the scriptures are clear that God is God. Amen. 
The scriptures are clear that God is almighty. The scriptures are clear that God is all knowing. Amen. The scriptures are clear that God has set all things into motion, that he created the world. The scriptures are clear that all things are made by him, for him and to him. Amen. The scriptures are clear that God in his sovereignty has chosen before the foundations of the world who would inherit salvation. And this is the beauty of adoption. The fact that he's seen us not because we were talented, not because we were beautiful, not because we were skilled, not because we would bring such great service to him and his kingdom or any of that stuff, but because he saw us in our brokenness, because he saw us in our sin, because he saw us as totally an able, lying helpless in a big, nasty pool of sin. And he chose to save us and he adopted us and he brought us into his family. Amen. When you go and you adopt kids, Ben and Amanda, do you look at the one that's going to be able to um, win the Heisman Trophy in college? No, you don't look at the one who's, man, he's got great stature. He's going to play basketball. I'll take him. He's going to be on the front row. I, I got him. Let's go. You don't take the one who's cute and beautiful. You say, it doesn't matter. Sight unseen, I'll take them. I love them. I will bring them in my home and raise them as my own and give them an inheritance the same as my own children. Amen. The same as anybody else in my family. That's the beauty of adoption. That he didn't choose us because we were talented or cute or any of those things. In fact, 1 Corinthians says that he chose the lowly things. The lowly things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the broken. He chose the sinful. He chose the drug addict. He chose the prideful. He chose nasty vessels to inherit his glory. What a great paradox, huh? So in view of uh, Romans nine fourteen, is there any injustice in God for electing some to be saved and others to not? Absolutely not. May it never be, as the scripture says, no, 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 a thousand times. No, there is no injustice and there can't be injustice in God because he's holy and he's perfect. Amen. So God had not chosen some to be saved. If God had not chosen some to be saved, then no one would be saved because we see in our depraved nature, nobody's seeking after God. He had to move first, amen? So after seeing the doctrine of man and seeing how sinful we are, we see that the only thing that we deserve is hell. People would say this is not fair. We don't want fair because what does fair bring us? Fair brings us to condemnation and hell. And you talk about that's not fair. Then you tell that to Jesus, who was the perfect, sinless Savior, nailed to the cross for our sins, who did not deserve that. That's not fair to him. Yet he done it anyways. So after uh, we don't deserve a perfect heaven with a perfect God and a perfect Savior. We don't deserve those things. And of course, it isn't fair that God would choose some Of course, like I said, it's not fair that God would choose some and not others. Because like I said, we don't want fair. We want this grace. We don't want fair. We want grace. Fair sends us to hell. And like I said, talk uh, about fair to Jesus and tell me how far that you get. Was it fair to the perfect son of God to be delivered over as a criminal? Absolutely not. Again, we don't want fair. We want grace. Undeserved favor. And really, it's a loving and compassionate doctrine that God would care enough to save detestable sinners by the blood of his perfect son. It's a loving and caring doctrine. And so church, we got to remove ourselves from the process because it isn't all about us. 
It's all about him and it's everything that he has done. And that's what the Bible is clear of. Uh, we, uh, so many times we like to put ourselves in the scriptures. We like to put ourselves in the Bible, right? How does this apply to me? Which is great. Application is, is truth and you need to apply the scriptures to yourself. But you need to not put that on the front end. You need to put that on the back end. And you need to say, what does this say about God? Amen. What does this say about God and what has God done? So we may, I, I pray that we may learn to magnify God in all of his perfect glory. That we would maybe learn to step down from our thrones and quit telling God how he ought to be and accept the God of the Bible and embrace the God of the Bible and all of his sovereignty and all of his majesty. And let's embrace him as Lord over salvation, as Lord over creation, as Lord over my life, as Lord over your life, as Lord over all. Could we embrace him as what he says he is in the Bible? I think that we can. So you might say to me, then what is the purpose then of faith? What's the purpose of believing? What's the purpose of any of this stuff if God has already chosen those whom would be saved? What's the purpose then of ever having to believe the gospel? This is my, uh, my fourth point, that, that man is responsible to appropriate faith. We look at Romans chapter 10. Go ahead and go there real fast. Romans chapter 10. And we'll be in verse 9 through 13. Man is responsible to appropriate faith. Your grandmama can't choose your faith for you. Your uncle can't choose your faith for you. Your daddy ain't going to choose your faith for you. God isn't going to make you believe. You have to appropriate faith. So Romans uh, chapter 10 verses 9 through 13. And it says this. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Am I in the wrong place? I am in the wrong place. That's Romans chapter 9. Sorry, guys. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if you confess, that that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever, call, for, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The scripture specifically says that, right? Amen. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. The Bible says that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says to call on the name of the Lord. The Bible says today, do not harden your hearts. It says that today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. The Bible says to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Amen. The Bible is clear that in order to be saved, we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to respond to his calling. We have to respond to his drawing. We have to make a choice. Amen. Amen. We do have to choose. So maybe you were in the back room behind a stage in a church and you made the conscious decision to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you did it at an invitation here at these steps here at Waymaker Baptist Church. Maybe you were in a car. Maybe you were in a cold prison cell. Maybe you were on the street. Maybe you were on the couch. But at somewhere, it doesn't matter, somewhere along the line, if you are truly a Christian, you made a conscious decision to follow Jesus. 
Now, there's people who's grown up in church their whole entire life, famous pastors, who say, there wasn't a time that I did not know Jesus. And amen and glory to God for that. And they've made a conscious decision in their life to follow Jesus ever since they can remember. Amen, right? And I pray that our sons can grow up that way. I pray that our daughters can grow up that way. So you counted the cost. Uh, this is it. They, you know, uh, when we made that conscious decision to follow Jesus, we counted the cost. We saw that it was worth the risk. We, we, we humbled ourselves. We picked up our cross. We followed Jesus just as he commanded in the scripture. Whoever does not pick up their cross and follow me cannot be called my disciple. You chose, like I said, nobody else made you choose. You tasted and saw that grace was sweet like honey, that sin was bitter like vinegar, that the love of Christ is an ocean in which makes battleships seem like little toys. You know, we saw that the majesty and splendor of God as he filled the temple of our hearts and removed us from our throne was too much to bear that it brought us to our knees. Whatever that day looked like for you, you chose to follow him. You exercised faith. However, the faith did not originate inside of ourselves. Amen. Faith is a gift and it's a gift from God. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author, the writer, the author and the finisher of our faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Catch this. And this not from yourself. And this is faith. And this not from yourself. It is a gift from God. Not from works, lest any man should boast. God gave you the faith. He gave you the faith to be able to believe. The faith to believe is a gift from God, and he is free to give this gift to whomever he pleases. If I show up with a gift for John, and I say, here you go, John, I got you this sweet, awesome gift. And then Tim comes up and he says, where's my gift? Am I obligated to give Tim a gift? No, I wanted to give the gift to John. I didn't have to give the gift to Tim. And in human terms, I can put it that way. Now you might say, Tanner, you talked about choosing... But just a few minutes ago, you said that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're unable to come to Christ on our own. Uh, I did say that. You're absolutely right. And that is true. It's both and, right? Charles Spurgeon said this. When somebody asked him, how do you reconcile God's sovereign election and man's responsibility? Charles Spurgeon said, I don't have to reconcile friends. They're both true. They're both and. You do have a responsibility in the matter. So my fifth point, fifth, this is five, not this. This is five. God regenerates in salvation. So apart from God working in our emotions and apart from God working in our mind, apart from God working in our conscience, apart from God working in our will, we're unable to come to Christ. Unless God moves first, we will remain stuck. In fact, the, <clears throat> sorry guys, in fact, the spiritual things revealed in the Bible will go to no avail in the life of the person whom God did not move and begin to regenerate. And you might say to me, prove it, Tanner. And I will. Once by a personal testimony and a second by, by the scriptures. Before I got saved, reading the Bible was like if it was Chinese. And it was upside down. And I was in the dark. And I was upside down. And I was trying to read it and make sense of it in my life. That's what reading the Bible was like to me. And the spiritual things and the spiritual truths in the Bible before I got saved. It made absolutely zero sense. I had a veil before my eyes. I could not understand. because I, Why? Because I was perishing. Amen? And now the second way that I will prove it is, is John chapter 6. If you have your thumb in John, go ahead and flip over there real quick. John chapter 6, verse 44. And it says this. I want you to read it for yourselves. I'm not just saying it. I'm not making it up. Test me. Test the spirits. Remember that. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. This is Jesus talking. Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then you go to Ezekiel 36. By far my favorite passage of Scripture in the whole wide world. Ezekiel chapter 6. We're going to talk about regeneration a little bit. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 through 27. It says this. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. He's talking to Israel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's the moment of regeneration. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the moment of conversion. Regeneration and conversion, they're two distinct things, but they're parallel at the same time. And they happen just like that within a millisecond of each other. In John chapter 3, verse 8, it says that the wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So, is, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So regeneration is the process in which God begins to breathe life into the dead sinner. Remember, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to come to Christ on our own. Regeneration is this moment where he gets down and he begins to breathe. In this spiritual CPR form, life into the dead sinner to be able to respond to the faith that he's put inside of them. It's regeneration is the process of dry bones rattling. Amen. Regeneration is necessary for salvation. And like I said, regeneration and conversion, they're two distinct things, right? But they are parallel and they happen within a millisecond of each other. The moment that you're regenerated, that next moment you believe and you are converted. Spirit comes to dwell within you and you will never lose it. You'll stay saved the rest of your life. Amen. Amen. In order for a dead sin-sick, degenerate child of wrath to come to faith in Christ and be born again, God must first move. He must first begin to till the hard soil of their heart, making them able to appropriate the gift of faith that is given to them. And at that moment, where God is regenerated and the sinner has exercised faith, at that moment, a child of God is born. Amen. At that moment, there is no condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus. And at that moment, we go from despised to adopted. At that moment, we go from under wrath to under grace. At that moment, we go from enemies to God to having peace with God. At that moment, we go from enemies to Christ to being a brother with Christ. Amen. How marvelous it is to be brought uh, to be conveyed from darkness to light and to be loved by God. And our sixth point in this is, is that God justifies in salvation. God justifies in salvation. Remember what I say about justification, and, and I'll speak to, speak to the crowd here, that many of us, many of us know about justification, even though some of us may not know about justification. Justification is like super, super personal to me because I've stood in the courtroom many a times and I have been what well, I have been condemned guilty. Right. They've slammed the gavel and they've said 15 years. Devereaux, this is what you get. They've said seven years. Devereaux, they've said this. Devereaux, you're guilty. You're going to prison and, and I'll see you later on in life. OK, it seems like a thousand times I've stood there in that courtroom and I've been justified. Right? Or I mean, I've been declared guilty. But there comes a moment in, 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 with, with Christ, with God. That when we stand in the courtroom and we're facing the almighty wrath of God, right? The perfect holy wrath of God due to our sin. Not due to him, but because of our sin. That Christ steps in 
when he's about to slam the gavel and he steps in and he says, do you remember what I did on the cross? Amen? Do you remember what I did on the cross? I will take his due penalty. I will take his payment. Put it on me, Lord. Don't put it on him. And at that moment, we are justified when we believe that through faith. Amen? We are justified. We're declared not guilty. To be justified means to be declared righteous by God. So it's, it's more than just being not guilty. It's actually being declared righteous. And being declared righteous in the same sense that we're righteous on the same level as Christ. So he doesn't see us. He sees Christ. Right? Amen. Amen, Naya. No, 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 no. Ah, thank God. She's okay. I went to a church one time where they just let their kids run around everywhere like that. They didn't have child care either. But, like, they wouldn't even, like, try to, like, stop them. You know what I mean? Like, they would just, like, unleash the gates, man. Dude's preaching. He's, like, down here on the floor. And they're just, like, shoo, 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 running around, acting crazy, doing backflips off the stage. I'm, like, how do you guys even focus in this place? I'm following it everywhere I go. You know what I mean? But, like, they were having a great time. They were full of the spirit. I, re- I did like that church. It was cool. Uh, okay. Means to be squirrel. You gotta see how far. I mean, how easy it is for me, right? Yeah. Let's get back into serious mode here. Deep breath. Okay. To be to be justified means to be declared righteous by God. So it's more than just uh, being declared innocent, but we're actually putting on the righteousness of Christ. Right? We know that Christ is sinless, perfect, holy. Right? We we receive that same righteousness when we believe the gospel. But how can we be? How can we? Be declared righteous by the holy and innocent God when we are sinful and guilty humans. Like, how does that make sense? If God is perfect and he's a just judge, meaning there's no iniquity in him at all. uh, If he's a just judge, how can we be how can we be declared righteous if we're full of sin and we're actually guilty? It's like it's like if a judge caught me with a murder weapon, caught me red handed. I I, I shot Arthur, killed him dead. And then John's the judge, and he catches me with the gun in my hand, and I say, I'm guilty. And, you know, he caught me red-handed. And he's like, ah, no, you're good to go. I'll pardon you. You know, you're, I'm declaring you innocent. Even though you're clearly guilty, that wouldn't be a very just judge, right? But, but here's the thing. How can God do it? Well, the answer is, is propitiation. The answer is that word, which means it's an appeasement of wrath. And I'll just give you what R.C. Sproul writes on it, because it's a lot better than I can say it. He says, in putting forth Jesus as our propitiation, as our appeasement of wrath, the Lord vindicated his righteousness, ensuring that that he remains just, even as he becomes the justifier of those who believe in Christ Jesus. God provides what sinners need to be righteous in his sight without compromising his justice. When we are accounted righteous in Christ, justice is done. Justice is still done. But we do not feel the punishment our sin deserves. Instead, Jesus suffered it in our place. God can be the just and the justifier by the propitiation of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, who was perfect. Amen? In our place. God justifies us through his son. In fact, he demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Seventh point, and I'm getting, I'm getting a little closer. God glorifies in salvation. 
So what I mean by this, that God glorifies in salvation, is that in one day we, in one day we will be glorified with God, right? We will be given a new body that will withstand his presence and we'll be able to live on for all of eternity. All of our sin will be washed away, will we'll be taken away because we're given a new body. We won't be sinful anymore, amen? So one day we're going to be glorified with him. Uh, we'll spend every day with him for all of eternity. And once we're born again, we cannot lose our status in the kingdom, amen? Once we're born again, we cannot lose our status in the kingdom. Once we're born again, we can lose our status in the local church through church discipline. I really like that video you sent me, by the way. That was helpful. So we can lose our status of, 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 of membership in the church because of church discipline. But it doesn't mean that you lost your status in the kingdom of God. If you've done some things that were brought before the church and you're saying, hey, man, uh, you need to humble yourself and you refuse and you refuse and you refuse. And so we say we're taking away your membership and we're giving you over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh that may bring about repentance. Amen. You might lose your membership in the church, but it doesn't mean you've lost your membership in heaven. Amen. Through repentance, you'll prove that you are, are, are saved. Amen. And you'll come back. And you'll come home. So once we're born again, we cannot lose our status in the kingdom. We cannot lose our status in the sovereign will of God. We will persevere until the end. And it's simple because uh, I'm jumping ahead of myself. I'll get back to, back to where I was. So the, the Apostle John recorded a beautiful moment with Jesus about this topic. So if you got John 6, go back there again. John 6, verse 35 to 40. <clears throat> John six thirty five through 40. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Amen. All that the Father has given me, I have lost none, is what Jesus says. So if God has given you to the Son to be saved, he is not going to lose any. We have been given to Jesus from the Father in his perfect election. He will lose none. And like I said, this has a dual meaning to it. Those that God has called will all come to him. He is God. His word and his decree will stand. His word will not return to him void. Amen. If God has spoken something to happen, it's not going to not happen. Right. It wouldn't make him God if he couldn't make it happen. If he couldn't make him follow through with it. Right. He is God. His word and his decree will stand. His word will not return to him void. God has the power to save those whom he said he will save. God moved first through the process of regeneration when he removes your heart of stone and places, you in, uh, and places in you a heart of flesh. So when we finally see our deepest, nastiest, and wicked darkness that we were in, uh, because, because we have been confronted by a holy, magnificent, and perfect God, it's going to cause us to tremble, right? So when we're finally confronted with the power and the majesty and the splendor and the awesomeness of God during regeneration, we're not going to resist his mercy and his grace any longer, amen? 
It's like that Isaiah 6 moment when he saw God for who he was. He saw himself for who he truly was. And what did he say? Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am undone. Help me, Lord. It's what it brings you to. Amen. And on the other side of the coin, God is mighty to save. When we are converted, nothing will or can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And I'm going to flip over here and I'm going to read you something here. In Romans chapter 8, it says this. In Romans chapter 8, it says this. Hold on. Who will bring a charge against God elect? God's elect. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or pearl or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor any other thing created, nor wait, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing created, even yourself, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are converted. Nothing can separate us. It's more than just once saved, always saved. No, we're kept by the power of God. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. We cannot and we will not lose it. We will persevere to the end. And my eighth and, our, and my final point is that God declares salvation. If you got Romans chapter 10, I'll hurry. I know we've been here for a minute, guys. I'm sorry. You guys are equipped, though, to go long. I know, I know who's, your, who's your pastor, so I know, I know, your, main, I know your main squeeze. So you guys, are, you guys are equipped, man. We're ready to rock and roll. That's why when Matt Milligan came and he asked me, he said, what time frame do I got? I was like, whatever. You know, try not to go an hour and a half, but keep it under an hour and you'll be okay. So yeah, here we go. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. God declares salvation. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Amen? In God's amazing plan, he's chosen that he will declare that salvation is by his grace through faith in Christ revealed in the scripture and all for his glory. And in his amazing plan, he would reveal that or he would declare that salvation uh, through the great commission and through the evangelism of those that he has already saved. Right. And it started with 12. And look at where we are now. Amen. So do you see the depths and the greatness that we've been called to here in this verses? And, and let me and let me go ahead and walk this backwards. OK, God, God it's not that God needs us. To, to, to save anybody. But yet it's amazing that he has, in fact, uh, chosen that we would, we would bring salvation, that he would bring salvation to the whole world through the mouths and through the voices and through the evangelism of people just like us, right? And how does he say it, that it's going to happen? Well, if we walk this text, back, text backwards, starting in verse 15, and, and it says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Well, how do they, bring, how do they have beautiful feet? 
Here it is. Verse 15. How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless... Wait, here it is. How will they preach unless they are sent? And just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. How do you get beautiful feet? Well, you're sent. Why are you sent? So that you preach. Why are you preaching? So that they will believe. Why will they believe? So that they will call on Him. And why will they call on Him? So that they will be saved. Amen? It's this beautiful, beautiful process that He has chosen us to be able to be a part of. Like, He didn't need us, yet He loved us enough to be able to have stake in this great commission. God needs nothing from us, yet He's called us to declare His precious and glorious gospel to the nations and to all who would hear. Remember the great commission of Jesus Christ. We do not pick and we do not choose who we believe should hear the gospel. We do not decide who is elect. We do not, uh, and nor do we know who is elect, right? It's not our job. God's all-knowing. God knows these things. We have one job, guys, one job as waiters and waitresses. We got to get the food to the table without spilling it. That's it. We have one job as farmers. We plant the seed and we water the seed. God gives the increase. Who do I know? Or how do I know that this person over here may not receive the gospel? Does it matter? No, I still tell them the gospel the same as I would tell this person the gospel if I had some kind of insight that they would be saved. It doesn't matter. So you might get tired. You might get torn up about your family. They just will not come to Christ. They just will not believe what you believe. Well, you just keep witnessing because it doesn't matter. You just keep on telling the truth. You keep on telling them the gospel. We have one job to plant and water seeds. And that's it, guys. God gives the increase. So rest your minds on the fact that, that God is in perfect control of salvation. All we have to do is be obedient and we have to shout from the rooftops. So these truths about God and salvation, they should never make us boastful. These truths about God ought to prove to us that God is on the throne and that we're not on the throne. These truths, they should humble us. They should bring us low. These truths about God ought to have us shouting hallelujah to the king that would choose any of us. How marvelous it is that we are partakers in this inheritance of Christ all because of him. And may we leave here today changed, having God in the right perspective and knowing that he is in control of all things. Let's pray. So Lord, we love you. We thank you so much just for your grace and for your mercy. And we know this, God, from your word, that you are totally in control, that you are sovereign, that you know all things. God, that nothing surprises you. Me coming to Christ did not surprise you. The person that is lost um, and, and going to hell does not surprise you. So, Father, we pray that you, God, would have reign on the throne in our lives. That we would um, step down from our thrones and we would give it solely to you, God. That we would quit trying to overthrow you each and every day with our lives. But that knowing these truths, that you are totally controlling sovereign, would change the way that we evangelize, would change the way that we disciple we change the way that we read the Bible. we change the way that we interact with people. And God, what great love it is that you would love any of us. We're detestable sinners, God. We are wicked and rotten people. And yet you would love us enough to save us. And we thank you for that. It's in Christ's name. Amen.